You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, uh, good morning, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm glad you're here in this class, e- even though you didn't really have a choice. Um, <laughs> this is kind of it. Uh, good, good to have you. Let, let's, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Uh, Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this uh, Lord's Day, and we're thankful for the word that you've already given us uh, today from your servant and the encouragement uh, that we know that you are big and near us. What, what, a, what a gift of your grace. And I pray that today, as we press into our uh, topic, our subject matter this morning, that you'll give uh, the teacher clarity and all of us a sense of understanding as we come to terms with um, the, the creedal confessions that we, we say together with some regular basis uh, in this place. And we ask these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my printer died on me as far as ink goes, so I'm working off my computer this morning, which I'm, I don't normally do that, so I'll, I'll feel a little, a little uh, like I have two left feet, but we'll, we'll work through it. I, I, I came across a, uh, a quote, a really quote, kind of an engagement with um, theologian Rowan Williams, happened, used to be the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, actually, um, probably one of the more fertile uh, and, I guess, frustrating minds um, in the Anglican world, but cer- certainly a brilliant man. And uh, Rowan Williams published a, a, a volume several years back t- entitled On Christian Theology. I, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really rich uh, resource. And in that work, uh, Williams says near the beginning, it, it, is, it is the responsibility and the challenge of the Christian church to continually rethink its language and the system of language that it uses to articulate its faith. Now, let me, let me re- rephrase that and say that one more time. It's, it's the challenge of the church to, to rethink and to come to terms with the language that it uses to identify and to speak forth their common and collected faith. And what, why, do, why do I mention that at the beginning this morning? Because... Um, we say creeds in our liturgy every week. We do it all the time. It's, it's an integral part of our, of our corporate faith and worship together. Um, now, I, I, let, me, let me contextualize this a little bit for you with me, because I, I actually think this is extremely important to the long-term health and the longevity of the life of the church that we commit ourselves continually to our creedal formulations. We believe. And what does that mean when we say we believe corporately and together? Um, I, I, I grew up in a tradition. I mentioned this last week. And by the way, I, this is the, the middle of a series. And um, I'm going to go back to my basement lair uh, next week. And we'll dive back in. But I, I do want to sort of give a, because for some of you, this would be the only time we're together on this topic, on the Nicene Creed and how the Bible relates to it. So I'm going to try to give a panorama view this morning. But I, I grew up in a tradition, I think, that was quite, um, that, that was quite uh, uncomfortable with anything that sort of smacked of creedal um, formulations because that felt probably a little, a little too Catholic, a little too Roman Catholic. 
Um, I grew up singing songs like this. I, I need no other argument. I need no other creed. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Um, so I, I grew up in a kind of no creed uh, but Jesus, and all I need is just me, Jesus, and my Bible uh, to sort of make my way through this pilgrimage of faith. Now, I should say there is something very rich about what that tradition was seeking to affirm and protect, namely everything that the Christian faith thinks and does and prays needs to be articulated in such a way that we can say we do that because the Bible says X, Y, or Z. In other words, it might sound like a simplistic formulation to say Christians believe what the Bible says, but that actually is at the core of what it means to articulate Christian faith publicly and privately. We believe what the Bible says, and we seek to order our thoughts and our prayers in accord with, with Scripture. Well, how do, what, what do creeds have to do with that? And how do creeds, um, the Nicene Creed, which we cited this morning, do you have copies of that here? Yeah, okay. The Nicene Creed, which we cited this morning, or the Apostles' Creed, which we do together uh, and during morning and evening prayer, how do these creeds relate um, to our Christian faith? And how, and this is more to the driving concern of, of my class and my thought for us together, how do these creeds relate to the Bible? What's the relationship between uh, these creeds and, and the centrality and the authority of the biblical text themselves? Because we don't believe that the creeds are the Bible. Um, neither do we believe that the creeds are inspired or um, infallible, like we might believe uh, that the Bible is. So that, that raises questions about the relationship um, between the two. And why is this important? It's important because... If left on autopilot, this is becoming, I think, a, a, sort of a, a, a mantra for me, this sort of autopilot thing. But I think if left on spiritual or theological autopilot, the danger is that we enter into the linguistic categories that we use in our faith together. The words of our liturgy, the words of our creed, the words of our Eucharistic celebration, we enter into them, and they, they can become a kind of, I need to be careful here, but a kind of rote expression that's devoid of ongoing thought. And I do think that the, our, our liturgical life together is at its best when it's wed to a robust commitment to ongoing thought and engagement with what is it that we're actually saying when we come together and we say, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. What, what are we saying when we say that? And what are the implications for life and faith if what we're saying is really true, if what we say we believe to be true is really true, what are the implications for that in whatever existential moment I'm in now or will be tomorrow or uh, three years from now? So I think Rowan Williams is right to challenge Christians to constantly rethink and to recalibrate what it is, um, what our language is and the grammar that we use corporately to define ourselves in our, in our Christian existence. Um, I mentioned this to the class last week, and I don't know how many of you are in there or not, but just, just to kind of give you a sense of this. One of the grow, growing challenges that I've had um, in the sort of liturgical setting of the Episcopal our sort of context or larger sort of Anglican world is the fact that we have a shared linguistic and grammatical um, liturgy. In, in other words, people in a communion globally, there are certain aspects of our liturgy that even though it differs from one place to another, there's a, there's a common um, 
coalescence of words that we use in even various languages that identify our speech as something that's similar. Uh, So, for example, this morning when we said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, within some sort of 24-hour framework around our globe, Christians from all over the world said something very similar, if not exactly the same. That's important, I think. That's what that Catholicity, that universality is important. But one of the challenges that I have found in, in talking with people in various denominational expressions, even within our own, is how radically divergent our understanding can be of what the content and substance of Christian faith is, even though we affirm and we use the same language in our liturgy week in and week out. I think that's a challenge. For me, I'm, I'm still trying to get my mind around that. But that's a challenge for us to think about the implications of what it means to have a shared liturgy and yet be kind of miles apart when it comes to the theological substance of what we think that liturgy actually entails. And that's why um, continued reflection and theological engagement and biblical engagement on these issues, I really just believe it's requisite and central to the ongoing health and life of the church. All right. Now, that was a lot of spaghetti against the wall real fast. Um, and I, I, let's, let, let, you're here and I'm here, so let, let's just let this thing be kind of an alive dynamic. you have any questions about that, what I just said? Yes, I knew you would. Okay, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to bite on that one. Uh, anything want to ask a question about what we just talked about? We'll get to that. Anything? No, that, that's a great question. And the question about evil and evil source, you know, whether or not the deprivation of that, I, I, it's, a, it's a complex issue, and I, we won't chase that, ri- that rabbit right now, but table it, because um, we'll, we'll come to that at due point, at some point. But any questions about um, the sort of relationship about language and faith and our common shared, any, anything on that level? Yeah. What came to mind with me would be hashtag Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I mean, that's what I was hearing you say from the beginning. What does that, what, what's the hashtag? Oh, I'm so bad. I'm 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 completely in left field on that. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Is that is that? A, forgive my ignorance on this because I don't I don't do social media. And it's a, probably a failure on my part. But is is hashtag Father Son and Holy Spirit some something that's going on now? Well, hashtag is that that means you're supposed to know what's behind Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, and so I guess I. This is, a, I'm, I'm a such danger. a luddite. It's so bad. There is a danger in the lightness of that to yeah. ignore the depth of this. Yes, yes, yes. I see what you're saying. Yeah. A kind of Twitter, a, a Twitter account, 120 characters or less to express your Christian faith. We need more. I think that's that's fair enough. Coffee, you're going to come in. Oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, the, uh, the written language can have a completely different from the way the same words are spoken. And, and, I, and, and I've harped on this before. It's one of my favorite ones. Uh, um, and the third day, he rose again, paused, according to the scriptures. When, and the, there's no comma there. It says, and the third day, he arose again, according to the scriptures. I think that's a different meaning. Which, same words. 
Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I mean, I've noticed this, for example, and then we'll hop back into this. Um, I, I've noticed this, for example, with the way in which our, our choir and our musicians observe the commas in our hymnody. I'm not real good at that. I'll just, they, they breathe where they're supposed to. I don't when I'm singing. I was like, I'm just going to mosey on along in the song. Um, but, but that matters where these breaths t- take place. And I think that that whole notion, which is central to what I'd like to talk about this morning, that whole notion in the creed about the death and resurrection of Jesus being according to the scriptures and how one reads that is very important. And by the way, that language is not language that's new to the Nicene Creed. That's language that's borrowed right out of 1 Corinthians 15. So I think that's, that's really important. Now, let me, let me give you a little sort of contextual uh, sense of, of the creed um, and how, how it arose. I, um, uh, 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 so, someone put me on to a, a, a podcast um, that the BBC puts out. Victor put me on to this, In Our Time. I listened to the one this week on Constantine the Great. These sort of scholars get around and talk about um, sort of issues from history. Moby Dick, uh, Emily, that's, it's great. I'm, I'm, it's great. Uh, uh, um, I, I commend it to you. Uh, so Constantine the Great you know, had this sort of vision or something happened in this, in this epic battle before he goes into Rome where he sees a cross. And lots of people debate about the veracity of this whole conversion narrative. But for whatever reason, at some point in time, you know, Constantine the becomes a Christian, identifies himself in that way, and then that now becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. Um, so that by the time Constantine the Great has sort of come to the throne as, as sort of supreme emperor of the region, um, he sees the importance of bringing the church together, Eastern and Western bishops, to clarify what they understand in the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is rather important because... Um, the whole issue about Nicene faith, um, Trinitarian faith that's identified in the creed that we, that we confess together already this morning, that, that whole move toward clarification and articulation had been bubbling in the church from its inception. I think that's important. It's not a kind of fiat that happens in the fourth century, and now all of a sudden, now we're going you know, to figure out how God the Father and Jesus the Son relate to one another. That, that's not the case. This there's a continuity of thought that goes from Nicaea back to the church fathers and, 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 the, and the apostolic fathers wrestling with um, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Why? Because these are the tenets that, want to be, that, that the Nicene faith wants to hold on to in its theological identity, and they're, they're really important. Number one, contra the ongoing engagement with, the, with Judaism of the day, Christian faith does affirm and understand itself as a monotheistic religion. That's important. There is only one God. Um, And this, this, by the way, surfaces in a particular debate that happens after the Nicene Creed comes to us in 325 A.D. on how many wills are there in the divine being. Does the Son have a will, and the Father have a will, and the Holy Spirit have the will, or is there only one will? And the orthodox answer that's driven by the creed that we confess together is monothelitism. There's only one will in the divine being because there's only one God. So affirming monotheism and the singularity of the divine being is really important. Now, I should say both Islam and Judaism, if pressed into a corner, are going to identify 
Christians as tritheists. They're, they're not, they're not going to allow any sort of space for Christianity being a monotheistic religion, but I will, we should say clearly that Christian faith from its inception has always understood itself as a monotheistic faith. There is only one God. There's only one essential being that is God. There are not three gods. There's only one. Right? I, I tell you, when you start to think about the Trinity, your brain will begin to ooze out of your ear if you go too far. Right? Um, but there's another aspect of this that was uh, to be affirmed, and it has to do with the gospel. This is why I think it's so important. We didn't think of the Trinity as a, uh, as a doctrine that we affirm together, but really it's like Grandpa's wristwatch. You know, we, we look up, at, uh, up there, that I, I, we had a, a bull of a wristwatch for my grandfather that we had kept around the house, and we look at that thing encased up on, the, uh, up on the shelf. It's so nice to have that little piece of antiquity from our family. Does it tell time? No. Is it serviceable? Not really. Does it do much? No, it's not, not very useful, but I'm glad we have it. Nicene faith, Trinitarian faith, is not Grandpa's wristwatch. Um, it's central to the gospel because this is the other affirmation that Nicaea sought to uphold, namely the singularity of God's being is revealed to us in distinct persons, particularly the Son, who is an agent distinct from the Father but sent to reconcile and redeem all of humanity. In other words, Trinitarian faith has the gospel at its central concern and intention. The gospel's on the line. So while we sit here, and I think about this sort of in our postmodern context, you know, um, I, I look back, for example, at some of the Eucharist debates of the 16th century with various reformational figures, Calvin and Bootser and Luther and Melanchthon. I'm like, good Lord, couldn't you all just, I mean, I, I appreciate the distinctions. These are fine and important, but couldn't you just get together and kind of work past some of these picky unish differences? I don't know if you ever feel, I feel that way sometimes. Now, we can tend to think that doctrine is overly detailed and disassociated. That's not the way the early church fathers understood doctrine. Doctrine was central to the faith as that which is delivered and that which has the capacity to redeem and reconcile humanity. Doctrine really matters. So with that said, um, they come together in 325 A.D., the bishops from the east and the west, an, an enormous feat of God's providence to allow this to happen at this moment in time. You had a Christian emperor. You had a, a kind of a unified church east and west. They come together. And they wrestle through, in 325 A.D., the relationship between the Father and the Son primarily. And they come up with a term that we say in here, when we say our creed, of one substance with the Father. The technical term is homoousios, right? Of one substance with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That was the language that came out of Nicaea in 325 A.D. But we should know this. I think this is important. 325 A.D., the Nicene Creed that comes from that particular moment in time, did not settle all the problems. In fact, it kind of created some more. I mean, you had more problems that arose after this, so that one might think of a kind of Nicene orthodoxy or spirit that continued to be wrestled with after 325 A.D. for a whole generation and a half finally getting settled in around 381 A.D. at the, at the Council of Constantinople. Um, so that, that's a kind of an important thing to recognize, that the Nicene faith and the Nicene Creed was an ongoing wrestling match in the life of the church to understand what did Nicaea originally mean 
And how what might we best articulate this? Now, that's, that's a kind of little, little sort of historical and, and cultural context on that. This is the point that I want to talk with you about today. What's the relationship between the Bible and the creed? And I want to think about this with you um, in two ways in 10 minutes, okay? Um, so here's, here's the two ways I want to think about this. Number one, what's the, what's the formal uh, relationship between the Bible and the creed? Is the creed meant to um, replace the Bible? Is the creed meant to be understood as a Cliff Notes version of the Bible? In other words, you want to get the, the gist of what the Bible is all about and then read the creed. What's the creed and how does the creed relate to the Bible formally? This is a very important question. Matter of fact, um, in a lesson that we did together in, in this room, I don't know, a couple of months ago now, on tradition, I made a distinction that I got from Heiko Obermann between tradition one and tradition two in the life of the church. Um, I'm not going to go into that distinction, but I will tell you what tradition one is and what we affirm. Namely, the church's ongoing struggle to clarify what the scriptures have to say about God and God's will for his church in the world. That's tradition one. That's the kind of tradition that I affirm and get excited about. Because that's not the dead faith of the living, in Yaroslav Pelican's terms. That's the living faith of the dead. How does the church wrestle with the scriptures to articulate what it is that God is saying about himself and his will for the world and his church in the Bible. And the Nicene Creed is given to us to give us a sense and understanding of an internal pressure that's made from the Bible itself to articulate and name God in this way. This is how we name God. And that's why the Creed is given to us in three articles. Article 1 deals with the Father. Article 2, which is the chunkiest of all of it, it's the meatiest, deals with the Son, and then Article 3 deals with the Spirit and His Church. Um, so what's the relationship between the two? Now, I, I, my computer went dead on me, um, so I'll just go on the fly. Um, there was a lot of debate between Constantine and the bishops at Nicaea, and even Constantine's son, Constantinus, on how one should use extra-biblical language or whether or not we should use extra-biblical language when defining and articulating God's being. Now, this is interesting, I think, because the bishops, most of them, did not want to use extra-biblical language. They wanted to use the language of the Bible itself in the Nicene Creed. You say, well, what do you mean, Genelat? What I mean by that is, if you do a concordance search on the word Trinity in the Bible, it's not in there. If you do a concordance search for the term homoousios of one substance with the Father, of one substance, you'll find ousios in the Greek New Testament, but not quite the same way that you do um, with the way in which it's articulated in the creed. Uh, so what's the relationship then between extra-biblical language that you, we find in the creed and inner-biblical judgments in the Bible? Two things on this, and then I'll stop. Number one, and I think, I think this is really important. Number one, the creeds are meant to do defensive work. I mentioned this last week in the class, but I want to circle back at it because I might have some of you only once. Um, the creeds are meant to do defensive work in the life of the church. 
So if, if we use battle metaphors, which maybe aren't the best metaphors, but if we were to use battle metaphors in thinking about the creeds of the, of the church, the Apostles' Creed and, let's say, the Nicene Creed, if we were to use battle metaphors, the sword, I do not think, would be the right metaphor to, to, to bring to bear. Rather, the shield. Or, or to think about it in terms of driving on the highway. Now, the Nicene Creed is not meant to be the highway itself. I think the Nicene Creed is meant to be what? The guardrails that keep you on the highway. So they play a defensive role um, to help us understand who the God of the Bible is. And I mentioned this in the class last week, but I'll bring this back uh, to Irenaeus from the second century. Irenaeus uh, gave us uh, this, this, I think, very memorable uh, metaphor. If, we, if you wanted to put a mosaic in your house... And you, and you order a mosaic off of PotteryBarn.com or wherever you buy mosaics in the ancient world. I don't, I don't think it was that. Um, wherever you buy mosaics in the ancient world and, and uh, you had the mosaic sent to you and you ordered a king or a picture of the Caesar and it arrived at your house, you would need a guidebook from the artisan to help you put that mosaic together properly. Otherwise, you might end up with a fox or an elephant instead of Caesar. That's the way in which the church in its first four centuries understood its creedal and extra-biblical doctrinal formulations. It's a guidebook to help you when you're reading the Bible see the face of the king and not the face of a fox. So if we were to bring Irenaeus in here or any significant theologian from the fourth century, let's say Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and the, the list goes on. If we were to bring them in and ask them, okay, if the creeds play this role of guarding us from going off the rails and keeping us on the path straight, then what's the offensive work? What is the sword itself? Without reservation, every one of them would answer unequivocally, the positive work that's done in the life of the church, the offensive work that's done in the life of the church, the ongoing struggle that the church is called to is the engagement with the Bible itself. You see, we tend to think of, and I, I talk to my students about this, we tend to think of theology, um, th big thoughts about God as being a kind of abstract, a philosophical discipline that's um, a textbook set apart from the Bible itself. In other words, um, and I, I don't mean to pick on this. If you have this on your shelf, it's great. I mean, use it. But let's say uh, Wayne Grudem's big systematic theology um, or John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I have it near me at all times. Um, so it, I'm actually kind of serious about that. Um, but but you, whatever, whatever theology textbook you'd like to think about, um, here, here you have these theology textbooks that sort of seem to be viewed as independent from the Bible itself or the product of what the Bible says about subject X can then be found in this place here. So let's say you want to know about election and rejection or you want to know about atonement or you want to know about Christology. Well, you go to the Bible, you find all the places where it talks about that, you put it through the sausage mill, you come out with this particular product, and there you have it on pages 570 through 595 in this systematic theology, everything that the Bible has to say about Jesus and Christology. That's not how the early church fathers understood theology. The early church fathers understood theology as engaging the biblical text itself, the continued engagement with the Bible, not to then get away from the Bible to do other formulations. 
but because they, it's, it's as high a view of the Bible as I think we can find. Because they genuinely believe that God, as the author of the scriptures, meets his people at that sacred place. And those guardrails, that Nicene faith that's there, is, help, is to help you know that the God that you are encountering is the God that the Bible, in its totality, witnesses to and witnesses about. I think it's very important. The second thing is, well then, what about this extra-biblical language? I think this extra-biblical language, like, of one substance with the Father, a God of God, light of light. Um, Think about the first article, which is what I wanted to kind of exposit today, but we won't get to that. The first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Um, That language, by the way, which we are so overly familiar with, I think if we put that in biblical frame, should frighten us out of our boots. I I think that's, when you think about Pantocrator, or the omnipotent one, the almighty one, uh, the one who is completely distinct from everything that he is not, the one who did not have to create the world. There was no external compulsion on God to do anything by necessity outside of himself. He is the almighty one. So that when Moses comes to the burning bush in chapter 3 of Exodus and he has an encounter with this living God, the Almighty One, Moses has the right reaction. I better take my shoes off because this is holy ground and he covers his mouth. Whenever you have that kind of encounter with God, the Almighty One, stripped from the other two articles of faith, namely God's revelation in Jesus as the Redeemer, it is an overwhelming, frightening mystery. Again, one of my favorite scenes in the whole book of Exodus is when God calls all the people up to Mount Horeb. Every one of you, come on up here. I'm going to give you my law. And they come out of their tents in the morning. Remember this scene? They come out of their tents. Uh, They look up at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They see smoke. They see lightning. They feel the earth quaking. Do you remember their response? Hey, Moses, how about you go on up there for us? And, uh, and send us a postcard down here. We'll, we'll, you know, and, and, uh, there's no, no, and he's the almighty one. And that, by the way, is exactly where the Bible itself begins. I love that about the Nicene Creed. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that God was before the beginning. That means that God and the whole material world, seen and unseen, is the expression and the self-giving of God's own communicative love. Nothing compelled him to do that. That's who God is. And that's in accord with the ways in which the Bible speaks about the being of God. So when we start talking about God as one, and yet God as three, in the sense that these persons are distinct from one another, the Father is not the Son. Have you ever seen the embroidery on the, on the, on the chair um, right outside of the... Um, of the chancel, uh, there, there's, there's a little embroidery. I, uh, what's that, that little passage where there's a, you, we have a name for that here? Yes, I can never get that right. The Bartoladen? Yes, that one. Um, if you look at the chair, there, there's a great little uh, uh, um, stitching where it says, um, and it's, a, it's an ancient sort of symbol, um, that God is one on the outside. God is, so you have Father, Son, Spirit. Uh, est, 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 God is all those. But non-est, God is not the Son. God is not, I mean, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That, that particular tension that you feel and that we need when we articulate triune Nicene faith, that's a pressure 
that come from the Bible itself. In other words, let's put it to you in this way. Jesus really prays to someone. Have you thought about that? As the Son, he is in genuine communication with the Father who is other than him in relation, but the same as him in essence. So what feels like strange, abstract, philosophical slash theological language that we find in the Nicene Creed is actually a judgment that's made because of these inner concepts that the Bible itself pressures on us. Is Jesus really praying to someone? And if he is really praying to someone, then how can Jesus be John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Those distinctions between namings of being, God's being, his essence, and namings of relation, Jesus prays to someone. Jesus promises that he's going to send his agent, the Spirit, which is an extension of him and yet distinct from him at the same time. That language that we find in our Nicene Creed that we say biweekly around here is language that comes from the internal pressure of the Bible itself. And that's crucial. I'm going to tell you why I think this is so crucial. It's crucial because the church fathers leave us with a legacy of what to expect when we engage the Word of God. When we engage the Word of God, we are coming into that sort of holy environment where God has revealed himself as one and yet given himself to us in his Son as other um, in the person of his Redeemer in the person of his word, okay? So, that, so to kind of recap, and then I'll stop. To recap, what's the relationship between the Bible and the creed? Well, number one, it's defensive in the sense that the creeds help us to continue to do that offensive work of engaging the Bible. And I should, and I should just say this, that is the ongoing um, responsibility of the church in every generation of the faithful. And when Karl Barth uh, finished his teaching career at the University of Bonn in Germany when he got expelled by Hitler in the early 1930s, he would never teach in that university again. And on his way out, they asked him, Mr. Barth, do you have any last words for us? And his, his answer was, exegesis, exegesis, and more exegesis. If I can put it in our terms, read the Bible, read the Bible, and then read it again. Why? Because the Bible is not an inert shard. It's not a pot or a clay pot that we uncover in some archaeological dig. It is an ancient document. But the church understands the the Bible as dynamic and vibrant and palpably present by the promised presence of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. If, If we grab hold of that, which I think the church fathers want us to, if we grab hold of that, that completely changes the game of what we anticipate when we come and we read the Bible individually and collectively in the life of the church. And then number two, I want you to understand that Nicene faith, that the formulations that we have in the creed, which, by the way, could have been formulated in other ways, but the formulations that we have in our creed are formulations that come from an internal pressure that the Bible itself demands. If God is one, to whom then is Jesus of Nazareth praying. That's, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but that's the kind of internal dynamic that the Bible itself pressures us to think through in our Trinitarian faith, okay? Well, what time is it? Let me pray. Lord, uh, bless our friends here. Um, we're grateful uh, for your word, and we're grateful, Lord, 
for a legacy in, in, in the history of our church of, of godly men and women who have sought deeply your word so that, we could, so that we could identify and name the one that we pray to and understand the one who's revealed himself to us in, in his son. And so, Lord, let your Bible come alive. Let us find joy in it. Um, and let us be hopeful for our children and the next generation of the faithful that they too would arise with a deep love and passion for your word because they want an encounter, a redeeming encounter uh, with the living God as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.